Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. Welcome back to the BioEats World Journal Club, where we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. Okay, Lauren, so what are we talking about in this episode today? Today, we are diving into the world of brain organoids and their applications. So this is what some people call brains in a dish, right? Exactly. They are incredible models of the brain. They're grown from stem cells in the lab, and they've been used to uncover insights into how the brain works. And today, we're talking about a new type of brain organoid that recreates a key brain structure called the choroid plexus. The choroid plexus. I've never even heard of that. It's not surprising. It is buried deep, deep in your brain, and it's responsible for secreting the cerebrospinal fluid, or the CSF, which sort of encases your brain. But both the choroid plexus and the CSF have been woefully understudied in the past, and this new model that's described in the article that we're discussing today finally starts to understand some of its key functions, such as how it forms this really key barrier between the brain and the blood. And to discuss this research, today I'm joined by the senior author on the paper, Madeline Lancaster, who's a group leader at the MRC Laboratory for Molecular Biology in Cambridge. And our conversation begins with her describing the multiple roles of the CSF in the brain. We were really interested in this vital biological fluid, the cerebrospinal fluid, which I think doesn't really get as much attention as it deserves. People just kind of think it's this liquid in there that acts almost like an airbag in your brain so that when you hit your head, your brain doesn't hit against your skull. But it is so much more than that. It's almost taking on this dual role, actually, that in normal organs is taken by blood and the lymphatic system. So the blood, it's not really able to enter the brain. There's this blood-brain barrier. Whereas the cerebrospinal fluid has full access, it's bathing the brain, and it can even get in between neurons in the brain. And in that way, it brings in important nutrients, proteins, vitamins, and then it's sort of like the lymphatic system is traditionally, it's helping to clear away toxic byproducts. And at the same time, it's also this barrier as well, it too is also protected from the blood by the choroid plexus, which is both creating this barrier to prevent things from the blood getting into the cerebrospinal fluid, but also producing the cerebrospinal fluid. Yeah, that's a lot of different functions. So tell me about the setup that you use to study the choroid plexus and the cerebrospinal fluid. So we started becoming interested in it because we make these so-called cerebral organoids in my lab, which are basically small sort of brain-like tissues that we develop from pluripotent stem cells. So this means stem cells that can make any cell in the body, and we essentially sort of gently guide them towards becoming a neural identity. But once they take on this neural identity, then they have the ability of making any cell in the brain, really. And so we found that we could identify brain organoids that had the right sort of architecture and markers that suggested that they were choroid plexus cells. And so we became interested in how we might be able to produce an organoid that was really just pure choroid plexus so that we could really study it in isolation and understand how it functions and which components of cerebrospinal fluid are generated by those cells. So I've heard 
brain organoids referred to as sort of a brain in the dish. And I know that that's a really simplified way of thinking about it. It's a in vitro model, so outside of the body, and they're formed from human cells that have this ability to develop into all the different specialized cell types of the body. And if I understand you right, you were just looking to see kind of what kind of cells and what kind of brain structures you could develop from these stem cells. And you found that they could form these choroid plexus cells. And then you got interested in that and started to see how close to the choroid plexus in your brain, you could make these structures in the dish. Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking about how I visualize these organoids. Are they like a three-dimensional ball of cells where on the very inside is the cells that have formed the choroid plexus and they're secreting the CSF-like fluid into the center. And then you have these balls of cells surrounded by media that provide the nutrients necessary for the support of the cells. Yeah. So basically what it really looks like is this sort of dense structure of cells. And then if you were to cut into that, you would see like little micro cavities where there's fluid. And then usually what happens is there will be a big fluid filled sac just like coming off of that. And so basically what's happening there is that the side that would normally be facing the blood, they have that side out next to the media. And then they're filtering the media through and all of the CSF-like fluid that they're producing is going into the inside of the organoid. But because they're so productive, it doesn't always fit inside these little tiny sort of micro channels. So it'll sort of get like shuttled into this big fluid-filled sac. So what are some of the benefits of creating these brain organoids compared to trying to study these, you know, in mice or from MRIs or other external measures in human brains? Well, first of all, like actually every organ in the body, there are differences in humans compared with mice. We often tout all the important differences between our brains and mice because we feel that that is something that truly makes us unique. But we actually don't really know most of what's really different about the human choroid plexus and about the human cerebrospinal fluid compared with other animals because it is really inaccessible. I mean, the choroid plexus is located at the very middle inside of your brain. And for example, an MRI doesn't have the resolution to look at those cells. You can look at the sort of overall shape of it, but you can't really get any kind of molecular insight or even cell biological insight. And that's what the organoids provide us with. So now that we have some basis for understanding the importance of cerebral spinal fluid, how it's produced by the choroid plexus, and why it's important to create these new models to understand its development and function, let's talk about the methods and results of the paper and start with how you generated these organoids. Can you describe that process? Yeah, sure. So we find that the best way to make really nice organoids is to try to first understand development and to use the developmental biology to guide us. Because of course, these different organs are made very, very well in an actual embryo. So, you know, nature has already figured that out. So if we can just understand how nature does it, then we can hopefully use that understanding to recreate that in the dish. And so the way we do that is by putting on activators of specific signaling pathways, which are the BMP pathway and the Wnt pathway. And this just essentially drives everything towards a choroid plexus identity. But otherwise, we culture these organoids and let them develop according to their own sort of intrinsic program. I think that's really interesting is you're 
basically using the same signals that the embryo uses when as it's developing, then you're just kind of recapitulating that in a lab and generating those tissues now in an in vitro setting. So how do you determine that your organoids have this choroid plexus identity? And how do you draw the line between like, this is a good model for this tissue, as opposed to we need to continue to do work to make this more lifelike? Yeah, so that actually took a lot of work in in the paper, to be honest. We sort of just present the final products. But the first author on the paper, Laura, spent several months optimizing, you know, concentrations of growth factors and small molecules and timing and all of this. And then what's very nice about the choroid plexus being this highly secretory tissue, it looks totally different. You can see it just by eye. So it forms these very like sort of fluffy tissues because it's making this very thin single cell layer that has to fold in on itself to sort of like fit all the cells in, in a way. So when she played around with these different concentrations and timings, she could just immediately see whether it was working or not. And then once we sort of had it narrowed down, analyze it in much more detail and actually, you know, do immunohistochemistry to look for specific markers and, you know, things like single cell RNA-seq to really identify the cells that were there. So because this is an in vitro system, you know, it's a model of the choroid plexus and not the choroid plexus itself. What are some of the key differences between the organoids and the real organ that you noticed? The major thing that it's lacking is vasculature. And so in the organoid is essentially two major cell types, which are the secretory epithelium, which kind of does all the grunt work, and then a supportive sort of stromal cell layer. And normally in vivo, the stromal compartment would have blood vessels, you know, invading. And in fact, while the vasculature in the rest of the brain is surrounded by this very, very tight blood-brain barrier that doesn't let anything across, the vasculature in the choroid plexus is incredibly leaky. And that's really important because those choroid plexus epithelial cells, they need to have plenty of blood to secrete all this CSF. And then you've got even like immune cells that are sort of surveilling the environment and other cell types that would be coming from other sources in the body, which we don't have. Right. So you were able to recapitulate really well some elements of the choroid plexus, like this really important secretory structure. So you could study how it produces the cerebral spinal fluid, but you aren't able really to use these organoids yet to look at how the choroid plexus and the blood vasculature interact. So it's interesting because what we found actually was that the choroid plexus seem, in these organoids seem to almost treat the media that we have them culturing in, almost treated that like it was the blood. <laughs> so when there were blood components in the media, things like, for example, serum albumin, the choroid plexus was able to take those blood components and filter them into the CSF just like it would in vivo. So you can actually provide a blood-like environment for it, but it's going to lack the endothelial cells that would normally be present surrounding the vasculature and some of the other cell types, the immune cells, for example. I see, I see, I see. So it's missing the cells that form the vasculature. So the cells that form your veins and your arteries and things like that, but it's still able to replicate the interactions with the blood. So what we've found is that it is a very good model, actually quite remarkably good for looking at a filtration of blood components and also what we call de novo secretion. So the generation of proteins and then secretion into the CSF. 
now we've got a grasp on the system. As you mentioned, a lot of the details of how you actually built this organoid were not the focus of the paper. The focus of the paper is all the ways that you use this organoid to study choroid plexus function. So let's get into some of those details. And I think my personal favorite was looking at its barrier function, as we mentioned, from the blood into the cerebral spinal fluid. And so can you talk to me about how you use these organoids to investigate barrier function? So there are quite a lot of brain barrier models, but they're not perfect. And many times they can prevent entry of large things like proteins, but not small molecules. So we wanted to see if our organoids could maybe go beyond the existing barriers because they form this natural orientation where they sort of have their blood side sort of next to the media and treat it like blood and then produce this fluid on the inside. So they really create these separate compartments and they really seem to keep media, for example, from just leaking in. So we tried with a number of drugs where it's known whether they enter the brain or not. And for example, we took dopamine and L-DOPA which are very, very similar in terms of their molecular structure. But one is able to cross into the brain, and that's L-DOPA, whereas dopamine doesn't cross in the brain. And at least to my knowledge, I don't think there's been an in vitro model that's been able to model that selectivity. So we applied those into the media and just looked to see whether they could cross and found that indeed dopamine could not cross, but L-DOPA could. And then we expanded this to a number of other drugs and showed again that we saw the same sort of profile that you would see in vivo, further validating that this is a really selective barrier and is modeling that same blood CSF barrier. Yeah, I think this is really interesting because we know that a lot of the therapeutics and drugs that we take don't cross into the brain, you know, because of this blood-brain barrier and also, as I've learned now, this blood CSF barrier, but some do cross, you know antidepressants, anti-seizure medications, they act in the brain. And that has been a real challenge for pharmaceutical development is getting drugs to the brain and being able to cross that barrier. So having this model, which can now be used to assay whether drugs can cross into the brain seems very powerful and a really interesting application of this work. Yeah. So another thing I would just add there, I think there's also often a need to try to get drugs across that we can't get across. So a good example is, for example, in treatment of brain cancers, where many of the therapeutic agents that we use for treating cancers in the rest of the body, we can't use in brain cancers because they can't enter. And so maybe this is potentially an easier barrier to cross because it is really just one cell type that's making up this barrier. And so if we can get things into the CSF, maybe that could be an alternative way to get things into the brain. What other insights did you find from studying these organoids? So we actually found something that was really sort of unexpected, which is actually that the secretory epithelium of the choroid plexus is not so simple. So it was just sort of previously thought to be this kind of homogeneous cell population. All the epithelial cells there are the same and they all have the same role. They all just make CSF, right? But when we started looking a little more carefully at our single cell RNA-seq, where we're looking at the molecular signature of each individual cell, then we were able to find that the choroid plexus epithelium actually contains four subtypes. And they're all secretory cells, but they seem to have slightly different roles. And so, for example, we were able to identify a subset of cells that had a lot more mitochondria 
than the other cells. And another subset of cells that had a lot more genes involved in making the cilia. So this is this little protrusion that receives signals. And these two sort of subtypes have also been found in other secretory organs like the kidney. And they've been described as being dark or light cells when you look at them in electron microscopy. And in fact, if you look in the really old literature, you know, from decades ago, you can actually find reports of dark and light cells in choroid plexus. But they've just been sort of ignored and nobody knew anything about them. So we were actually able to define these cells. And then we were also able to identify a brand new cell type that hadn't been described before in choroid plexus. And these are so-called myoepithelial cells. Myo because they have a lot of myosins, so they're actually contractile cells. But they're also bona fide epithelial cells. So it suggests that there's these contractile cells that help to sort of squeeze out the CSF. And then finally, we were able to identify a mature epithelial cell that's actually dividing. So suggesting that there may be some turnover of this organ, even later after maturation is complete. I love the connection between all those old technologies and new technologies and using these organoids to identify additional complexity in a tissue and then being able to link that to things that were seen in the literature a long time ago when they're doing much more crude analyses It was actually quite fun finding that old literature and realizing, oh my gosh, this is what we have, you know? So let's talk about the bigger implications of this work. How are you excited about using these organoids in the future? I think there's a huge amount of potential in basic understanding of this organ and of this important bodily fluid. My lab is primarily interested in evolution. So we'd like to look at how development of the choroid plexus might be different in humans compared with other animals and looking at that in the context of brain evolution. I didn't actually realize that you were interested in evolution and that was kind of how you got into this. Can you tell me about how you think that the CSF or the choroid plexus plays an important role in the evolution of the brain? Yeah, well, we don't know yet, (laughs) really, to be honest. But I think there's already really good evidence that our brains produce a lot more CSF than, for example, mice. So we're starting to now make these choroid plexus organoids from different species and compare them. And so, for example, if we make them from mouse cells, they're a lot smaller and they don't produce nearly as much CSF as what we see in our human organoids. So understanding, you know, what's controlling that What's sort of telling the cells to stop growing these tissues? What's telling them to stop secreting? Yeah, it's interesting thinking the mouse organoids are smaller than the human organoids. And naturally, I would think like, well, yeah, mouse are smaller than humans. And it's like, but there's a reason why they're smaller. That is caused by something encoded in their genome, something that has evolved over time. And the fact that it's able to recapitulate that without all the external stimuli of the rest of the developing organism is, means that it's intrinsic to how that organ develops. And thinking about how different parts of our body know to grow to specific sizes, I think is really interesting. And something that I think that you know the average person doesn't necessarily think of, but then when you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, how does my arm bone know to stop at that length? Yeah, you've hit it exactly on the head. It's really remarkable that the organoids recapitulate that, first of all, because I would have thought that that would be something that would be information provided from the outside. You know, something like, I don't know, skull size or amount of time in the womb. And also, you know, we typically think that our organoids are limited in size because we don't have blood vessels to help them grow bigger. But these size differences are present even before they would need to have any blood vessels. So there's really something intrinsic and 
trying to understand how do the cells know, okay, we've grown enough, we need to stop. That's a huge question. It's even like outside of the context of the rest of the brain. Like it's definitely surprising that that element is maintained in an in vitro setting. So your lab is interested in this evolutionary question. Are there other uses for these choroid plexus organoids that you're excited to see other groups take forward? Or are there other applications that are exciting to you? Yeah, we're a pretty small lab. We have a pretty focused goal in mind. So we can't do everything that I think these organoids can provide. And so I really do hope that others will take it on. I think, for example, the barrier work that we did shows that they are a very good model of the blood CSF barrier and can be used to test a new drug in development. The jump from preclinical animal models to the very first phase one clinical trial, it's a really huge jump, actually. And it's often really kind of a black box. And before spending a lot of time on animal studies, for example, they could already run it through this and just see, does it even have the capability of entering the brain? And, you know, that could really save money, animal lives, and you could already then start using it to modify drugs and see if you can increase their permeability or decrease. Maybe you don't want them to enter the brain. And in particular, we really never know how much of a given drug we should give to people because you just don't know how much is going to be metabolized in a certain way and how much will actually cross into the brain. And for every single drug that we tested, there's human differences there. So for example, L-DOPA, we know you have to give a different amount to humans to get a certain concentration in the brain than you do in a rat or a mouse or a dog. And so having this as a starting point to just help sort of guide you in terms of how much drug you might want to try in people I think that would be really informative and might also help save lives. It sounds like a really important addition to the screening and the testing, like a step between a pure animal model and a pure human model, able to recapitulate some of the aspects of human biology that are really critical to understand before you actually put the drug in humans. As we make these advances and understand the basic biology, we should also be translating these new insights into the clinic and how we treat disease, how we think about designing therapeutics. And I think this work highlights the importance of the basic science and how that can be used to improve the translational science. Yeah, absolutely. Adeline, thank you so much for joining us on Journal Club this week. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. And that's it for Journal Club this week. Thanks again to my guest, Madeline Lancaster. And please remember to subscribe, rate, and review BioEats World wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear on BioEats World, sign up for our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletter. 